I want to invite Jay Pendrick up to, to read for us. And we're going to read, uh, or we're going to hear Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And uh, this is following um, what my friend Dave Crispell preached on last week, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Ephesians. Go for it. Hi, this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. At one time you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to live like people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of God of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of, the, of his grace by the goodness of that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, you're God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. Thanks, Jay. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Holy Ones in Ephesus. Over and over, he refers to normal people in normal locations as extraordinary, mostly because of their most important location in Christ. If you read this letter, and we've been, uh, remember, sitting in one sitting and reading the letter once a week, and, and you'll just, it just pops over and over, in Christ, in Christ. He spent the whole first chapter that we've been covering over the previous three weeks praying and praising, overflowing in joy and thanksgiving for this community that God's put together. I find this really inspiring this summer. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who, who knows what summer is like in a place with a lot of uh, students um, in churches in these areas like ours and with a lot of young families, with a lot of students. He said, summer is like the church's winter in, in, in places like that. And what I think he meant was that, you know, we, we normally, it's counterintuitive to, to what we normally think, that summer is just going to be this time of just bursting with growth and energy, um, crazy enthusiasm, and all this stuff. We, after all, like, we're not doing anything. We're vacationing all summer, right? No one's doing anything important. No one has responsibilities or anything during the summer. But in actuality, everyone is everywhere. And while growth is happening, it's normally kind of more subterranean. It's underground, it's sneaky than we'd expect. Each week we come and it's hard to know who's going to be here uh, or who's going to be here on time. Wink, wink. Uh, who's on vacation, who's on their internship, who's visiting family or who's having family visit them. It's hard to know all these things, but despite all that, the Lord is doing great things here in Oak Church, bringing Visitors each week, bringing visitors back, building up a group of people from this neighborhood. That's what I'm really excited about. 
so encouraging as y'all's pastor to see this happening, to be a part of nurturing and encouraging it, to answer the challenge of bringing new people to the center of what's happening, what God's doing in Oak Church, to experience and offer hope and healing and hospitality to our neighbors. If you've been here for only a week or only two weeks, uh, I hope you'll, you'll feel a call to, and an opportunity to be involved, like really involved. Uh, when, when Rach and I uh, were here, we were here for a couple years and we, we had been looking for a church and we started attending the gathering church and it's very early days and they met at another location and they met in the evenings and one of the things that got us so excited about the gathering church is the first week we showed up there and they didn't they didn't know us. We had actually probably stalked a couple people, and that's how we got there in the first place. But uh, that's another story for another time. But we showed up, and after the service, they, they passed around this cup. And we might have to do this, actually. And it was a, a goblet full of little paper slips with things to do, because there's always things to do, um, uh, things to help with. And, 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 you know, I had things like greeting or cleaning up or uncovering dishes for potluck or uh, helping with the kids. And, and I had them all in these, these little slips of paper in the goblet. So, of course, it was a joblet. Uh, it came to be known as. And, and so Rachel and I pulled uh, greeting our, our first week there. And the next week, we were the, greet, we were the official greeters of week two of the Gathering Church. And from there on out, we, we kept asking for things to do. Uh, what, what do you need us to do? What can we help with? How can we be a part of what's going on? And, and so I, I hope if you've only been here for a week or two even, or even longer, that you, you've be involved in, in things like potluck, uh, things like prayer, things like holy yoga or the garden, Bible study or kids' ministry, welcoming or planning for VBS. That's a big thing. Um, it, it, we, we really need all hands on deck for that. I hope you'll put to use your gifts and your assets that are unique that we didn't have before you stepped in those doors. That the Lord has given you these things to grow in your faith and to be a blessing to someone else, to all these someone else's. That if you notice something missing, you won't, you'll take that as an opportunity, you know, wet cement, um, to, to a new way to serve and to love and to lead and to grow and to participate in the life of this body. So thinking over all those things, I've been kind of cribbing off of Paul's prayer. I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your, light, uh, your heart enlightened, you may know what it is, the hope to which he has called you. It's been my prayer that at the, at the end of the summer, as many of our friends come back from all the places they've been scattered as, as we regather, that we're actually going to have to reintroduce them to Oak Church. Like that, that's a really cool thing. And I think this problem, quote, unquote, problem, is exactly what Paul is talking about when he moves into the core of his letter to the Ephesian church. It's the, quote, unquote, problem of a growing family, where older kids have to continue to have joy and feel ownership, even while younger kids come in as equally loved and important to the family. This past 
week, we, my family, personally speaking, we, we've gotten a chance to kind of experience this and cultivate this. Uh, we're two weeks ago at the beach for a week um, with my in-laws, and then we come back and, and spend about 36 hours um, as a somewhat normally normal family unit on our own turf. And then Rachel's parents took Noah uh, to the mountains for a week for camp. And this is a camp that Rachel has gone to her whole life. So it was, it, it was kind of like little Rach on like a 30-year delay. Um, but but the, the consequence of this, this strange week where, where we could potentially go from having like one kid and hauling one kid around to at any moment having three kids once Noah comes back, it was pretty bizarre. But in that time, we got to, to cultivate this really special time with Titus as he's on the brink, like looking over the cliff of becoming the middle child, right? Sandwiched between two sisters. I, I pray for him so much. <laughs> but we, we got this chance to, to, to spend time with him, and, and he, he's a quiet guy, you know, as probably evidenced by the fact that my sermon and uh, stories about my kids are like 85% Noah and like, like 10% the baby in her belly, and Titus gets 5% already. But throughout this week, we got a chance to, to kind of learn him and, and in the, in the like stifling silence, the lack of Noah around us, we got to hear him speak <laughs> a little bit and, 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 and kind of do things that he likes to do, which mainly involve trucks um, and, and snack cups. But uh, it, it's this idea for us um, as, as the Lord continues to grow our family that, we, that we're sensitive to the needs of Noah, the needs of Titus, and now the coming needs of this new baby, which are all similar in some ways, but could all be kind of different. And Paul's trying to negotiate that uh, with this church that, that uh, is an offshoot of, of the Judaism that he knew and is now uh, coming to include uh, these Gentiles who have up until recently been a part from life and God and apart from God's family. And they're trying to negotiate this. So Paul comes out swinging <laughs> with a really strong statement at the beginning of chapter 2. You were dead women and men walking, is essentially what he says. Not you were guilty or lonely or looking to improve. You were dead, he says. I'm not sure this is a statement about someone outside of Christ's ability to do things or even good things. I, I think it's more of a statement about a corpse's inability to make herself alive again. When the text says, you used to live like people in this world, it literally, and when I say literally, I don't mean like figuratively literally, which now is a definition. I mean, you actually walked around in the currents of this world. You walked around in it. You used to live according to this world. And this world is a, it's a death-dealing world. It's fundamentally cracked. <laughs> and you and I walk around in it, breathing its air. We let in its pollution and its myths, and they become a part of us. You, you, you know that saying, you are what you eat? 
I think that's a little bit of what Paul's saying. So then we operate out of fear, out of scarcity, out of exclusion, out of violence, like there's not enough, like grace doesn't exist, and like someone else's gain is necessarily my loss. And we draft off of the disobedience of others because it seems like God is absent or aloof. And I can tell you when kids think that you're not watching, (laughs) they're going to behave how they think they should, not how you have taught them to. And this is Israel's story, wandering in the desert, begging for a king who couldn't be but a pale, weak imitation of their heavenly king, but at least they could see him, at least they could touch him, at least they, they might be able to domesticate him. And this is our story too, always veering towards disobedience. Knowing the truth or intending the good isn't good enough. We lie to, I mean, think about that. Like, think every time you've tried to make a New Year's resolution or start a diet, think about how bad we are at our follow-through on that sort of thing. We lie to ourselves. We cheat, and we're unfaithful. We covet. We covet our neighbors, their lives, their property, their share of things. We look to feel good, and we chase after happiness. After all, the pursuit of happiness is part of what it means to be an American. Usually we do all this at someone else's expense. That's born out of scarcity. Generally, we, we do this without regard to what God has intended for us. And I think what God has intended for us is usually far less and far more than we can imagine for ourselves. Far less in that I think he wills us to live and love very simply, without clutter, without clamor. We've, we just fill up our lives with so much. And far more in that he offers us Christ, life and love, life abundantly. Peter mentions this at the start of his second letter too, so I don't think it's just a Paul thing. When he says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. So we're given a choice, life or death, to live like we're dying, which is really no life at all, or to grab hold of our place in the divine life that the Father has made possible for us in Christ. And this this same offer was previewed for the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land. Deuteronomy 30 says, uh, 15 through 20 says, Look here. Today I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. If you obey the Lord, your God's commandments, that I'm commanding you right now by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments, his regulations, his case laws, then you will live and thrive. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them, I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witness against you right now. I've set life 
and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by clinging to him. That's how you will survive and live long in the fertile land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul's objective here is, uh, to the Ephesians, is not to give them an ultimatum. It's to give them a reminder. He's preaching to the choir here. They've already made this choice. It's in their past. And I'm, I'm mostly doing that too this morning. If it's not in your past, if that choice is not in your past, consider it. Take away all the baggage and just consider that offer. Life, promise, a thriving future, flourishing with God and others. Your sins taken away, your offenses forgiven, a new course charted for you, a new family to be part of. Consider that. But Paul's audience, he has them trying to understand how to deal how to create space for others in God's family. How to think of themselves in the present in a way that remembers their past. What he gets into is something like the old expression, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you, have you all heard that? He hinted at that earlier in his letter. In 112, he says, We're called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. Referring, of course, to the Jews who embraced Christ as the fulfillment of, God's ho- of their hopes for God's kingdom to break in on this world. In the next verse, he says, in 113, he says, You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. He delineates, probably for no other reason, because it was coming up in Ephesus and the communities around it. Next week, my good friend uh, Mike Boone um, will will preach on on the next several verses, and it kind of hits a fever pitch when Paul emphatically declares, Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of two groups making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. Grace to you and peace. Peace flowing from grace. So he reminds them and us that we all have the same makeup. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In short, we're all not God. We all mess up, and in fact, some of our messing up is just the result of us not being God, being finite, not being able to fill shoes we were never meant to fulfill in the first place, but we try so desperately to anyways. This summer, we'll consider digging our our root systems deeper in the grace and peace of God. Think of how this might change the way that you approach conflict or confusion or disagreement. This past week was a really good week to be rooted and grounded in love. In love, not fear, not selfishness, not mean-spiritedness, not 
boasting and rooted, not drifting or being blown away. You see, being rooted and grounded in love means not feeling threatened when your environment changes because your root system is strong. Being rooted in love means praying that anything that is not God's love will be weeded out of our hearts. Remember, Paul's already cleared the ground. Elsewhere, he says, no one is righteous, not one. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for fear. There's no room for boasting. We're all in the same boat here. Desperate for God to interrupt either our despair or our boasting with the two greatest words of Scripture. But God. The two greatest words of Scripture. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy. But God, and then Paul's language gets really explosive and expansive. He peppers his writing with with verbs. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us up with Christ. God's mercy, this gift of grace, has taken us from distant from him, absent in God's life, walking around in disobedience to stuck by Christ's side. His apprentices, united to him, raised with him, seated with him as royalty, as sons and daughters. And this is all, and Paul repeats himself for emphasis, because of his great love with which he loves us. The love with which he loves us. And if it wasn't clear enough already, he reminds us again, this isn't about any of us. As one of my teachers always said, when you sit down to read the Bible, remember that it's about God, stupid. Like that's, that's like a normal, a good thing to know. The same way, his grace, this gift, is just that it's gratuitous. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's like when, and I'm going to fall prey to what I said I would earlier. It's like when Noah starts walking around talking about what she's going to buy with, quote, her money. It's like, we have no capital, no savings, nothing that we haven't been given by our gracious God. Hallelujah for that, right? Eugene Peterson reminds us of this. He says, faith in Christ is an act of abandoning the shores of self, where we think we know where we stand, where if we just try hard enough, we can be in control Faith in Christ is a plunge into grace. Grace, not your own doing, but a gift of God. Just because you were first or closer, the shift to following Christ was somehow easier, doesn't mean that you're any less dead, and it doesn't mean that now you're any less alive in Christ. That's what grace means. That's the great equalizer of grace. That calls into question every bit of what makes us proud of ourselves or what makes us think that God is proud of us for or what maybe we think it means to be human. Instead, grace gets lavished on us and then crafts us into the image of Christ. We could call that grace craft if we want, right? This grace craft has a lot of backstory, this kind of careful making 
people doing work with God. And, and it literally has, like, literally hands-on craft has a good backstory in the Bible. Whether it's Bezalel being equipped and called to build the beautiful tabernacle for Israel's worship of their liberating Lord, or, the, or we're told, uh, Paul tells us about how he, he works with his hands with leather goods and tent pegs to earn respect in a living as he labors in the gospel. Or maybe it's that famous Proverbs 31 woman. Look her up. She's, she's not just some docile homebody. She's an artisan. Everyone praises her, her kids, her husband, people, not just, not just because she's nice to them, but because her goods are top-notch. She's labored away and crafted something useful, lasting, and good. Jesus himself was a craftsman, apprentice in the trade, by, early by his earthly father, carpentry. In fact, some sources in the 2nd and 3rd century talk about still using some of the plows that Jesus made, some of the farm implements, like 100 or 150 years later. This really kind of sheds a different light when Jesus in the Gospels starts talking about farming metaphors, like he might have actually known something about what he was talking about. You are saved by God's grace, Because of your faith, this salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possess. It's not something that you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. While Christian history, especially the last 600 or so years, has really struggled with how to talk about grace and work, how that's related, Paul finishes our passage by talking quite a bit about both and relating them. It's this grace-craft logic that God gives the gift as a means and motivation for work. Or as Dallas Willard famously wrote, grace is not opposed to, to effort, It is opposed to earning. After all, corpses and robots, not human beings alive and kicking, they're passive. They don't do work on their own. Women and men and girls and boys are meant to be makers. Three different words of making show up just in that 10th verse, just in that last part. Uh, They're Greek words, poema, kitzo, and ergon. The first Uh, poema, and you might hear what that word sounds like. Of course, and as always, is God's making. It's not just any kind of making, it's his craftsmanship. It's his careful uh, working to create a masterpiece, a, a poem. Instead of boasting about what we've done or become, in God's hands we're made to be what he has made us. In other places in the New Testament, this is used. The only other place it's used is Romans 1. It says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, and they are understood through the things that God has made. Our beauty is reclaimed as a testament to God's creative goodness. He labors over us. 
even today as we're all works in progress in this room. He uses the right tools and the right techniques and all the attention and care to bring about what we're supposed to be like. He, he, if you talk to someone who's, who makes really good furniture, they talk about examining the wood and seeing where the grains are headed and, and using the exact right sort of polish or, or, uh, or stains to, to bring out the best grain of what that wood always was in order so that it can be what it always should have been, something that will last, something that is useful, something um, cared for by a master artisan. And the second making that gets so has to do with looking at something that already exists and then transforming it, repurposing it, being created in Christ even though we've already been created as like being reborn in Christ after we've already been born. So maybe this week you come here as a wreck. <laughs> Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him to be what he's already called you, a masterpiece, and then to transform you into that. That's, that's part of his making, his repurposing. Let him use the people in this room to help him do that work. And finally, that last one, ergon, and, and that's like ergonomic, right? Um, I always love when you can actually hear what those words mean for us now. That kind of work is ours to do. Good works reflected of the good works we've become. Graceful tools in the hand of the master. We walk around in these good works. And, and that's, if we remember back, we used to walk around in disobedience. Now we walk around, and it's the same word, breathing in the air of God's grace craft. We loop back to that walking. We used to walk in the graveyard. Now we see what the Lord has done, and we partner with what he's doing. And this is all because of his grace. I want to pray and then lead us in confession. And, and uh, our time of confession can be a time to, to listen well. It can also be a time to, um, to ask God, what kind of work are you doing or are you asking to do? What kind of, of things do you see in me that you need um, to gently remove from me? Um, I'm not sure if he actually said it, but it's always attributed to him. They, they asked Leonardo da Vinci how how he sculpted David, right? Beautiful David statue. And, and he said, I just looked at a block of marble and I took away everything that didn't look like David. <laughs> yeah, simple. Um, in our time of confession, that's, that's what we're asking God to do is, is look at me, Lord, and take away everything that doesn't look like your son, Jesus, that you're making me into the image of. So, so let me pray, and then we'll spend some time alone, and then we'll join our voices in confession. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it, it just knocks down any of the attention or time or mental energy or effort that we put into defending ourselves or to boasting about anything we bring to the table because we don't bring anything to the table but you give us everything. Father, make us 
bold and brave to continue to come to you with empty hands, expecting you to fill it. Father, help us be brave enough to come before you and, and you know, like a, like a young artist to receive good criticism in order to be better, uh, to, to look to you as, as the master creating masterpieces. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, all the, the masterpieces around us that, that we encounter. We, we, we never talk to a normal person. We always are talking to someone that you're working in their lives or that you have worked in their life. And that makes every single person in this room unbelievable. It makes them a masterpiece. Give us that expectation. Give us that care that learns from how well you care for us, how detailed-oriented you are in each and every one of our lives. Lord, we marvel at that. We thank you for that. Father, set our hands to doing good work because of the grace we've received, not because we're, we're clever or skilled or gifted or, or awesome, but because you are awesome and you are graceful, and you are rich in mercy. We thank you for all these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.